I also question whether or not, you know, every person in the world owning hundreds of NFTs is really the most productive path forward, or if that necessarily grows the TAM, right, the total addressable market of the NFT space, because let's be candid, the reality is that like most of the world's population is not going to be spending tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on trading JPEGs. Welcome to the NFT Now podcast, your go-to source to succeed in the fast-moving world of Web3. I'm Matt Medved. I'm Alejandro Navia. And I'm Sam Heisel. Each week, we interview visionary creators, builders, and collectors so you can stay up to date on the most important trends and tactics for the internet's next frontier. Hey, Matt, how you doing? I'm doing amazing. How about you, Sam? Can't complain. We have a very special guest today. Who do we have lined up? We've got Meltem, Chief Strategy Officer of CoinShares, a leading full-service digital asset investment and trading group, also the former co-chair of the Cryptocurrency Council at the World Economic Forum, and known to many as the high priestess of the crypto dickbutts. Uh, you know, her, her, her reputation there uh, precedes her. So, Sam, what are you excited about for this conversation? Yeah, I mean, it was great learning about her perspective on the key factors driving the macroeconomic market and how that will likely affect crypto and NFTs. Also, learning her perspective surrounding the evolving regulatory landscape and some of the great principles she had for builders and entrepreneurs and how to grow your business in a bear market was really, really valuable. So really enjoyed this conversation. As always, if you haven't already, we want to encourage you to sign up for our weekly newsletter at nftnow.com. But without any further ado, let's get into this week's episode with Meltem Demirs. GM, GM, Meltem, so happy to have you on the NFT Now podcast. Woo, we're long overdue, Madved. We're in a cult together and we've we've never done a pod together. What's with that? I know, I know. We really put the cart, uh, you know, the wheel before the cart there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's good? It is the year of our Lord, 2023. It really is. It really is. I, I hear there's an equation that that, that still rings true. Yes. Uh, 1D equals 1B is one of the universal uh, tenets of, of math that the universe is based on. Since the universe is, you know, based on math, it's predicated by the rules of thermodynamics. Um, 1D equals 1B is such a universal truth. Uh this is a this is a core tenet of the the cult that you and I are in. So, well, you know, now that we've led with it, why don't we just get into it? Meltem, you are the queen of the crypto dick butts. Uh, why are you so passionate about this project? Uh, sure. So, so look, I think queen is, is not the title. One of the things that I always love talking about is honorifics, right? So honorifics are these, these titles that the people have. Um, and my, my honorific in the crypto community is high priestess, which I think is go. an exquisite honorific. Um, and uh, why do I love crypto dick butts? Let me count the ways. Look, um, if you follow the, sort of the the thought process of um, Richard Dawkins, who's a writer who writes a lot about the relationship between sort of biology, uh, science, and and human sort of belief, um, everything in human society, civilization is mimetic in nature, right? Our DNA is uh, replicated. Uh, memes similarly are sort of replicated and propagated. And now we have this beautiful medium known as the internet is a magical, wondrous place. It is where uh, the dick butt originally came from. It was a Reddit meme uh, from the internet. And I think crypto dick butts are really interesting because they are really, truly a leaderless community. Uh, Slowbro created crypto dick butts. Um, they took 
took six months to mint out. There wasn't really any promotion, any marketing around crypto dick butts. There's no marketing budget. There is just a, a DAO, the crypto dick butt DAO that um, accumulates the royalties. At the time they were minted, they were minted for something like 0.02 ETH. So this is by no means, you know, a huge moneymaker for, for Slowbro or anyone. And so what I really like about crypto dick butts and before that Ether rocks uh, as well is sort of these things that are memes where absurdity and um, sort of the organic evolution and the organic attraction of people to the meme itself and then the lore around the meme that gets built over time by people in this community is really fascinating to me. So when I started getting interested in crypto dick butts in early 2022, one of the things I quickly realized is like, oh my goodness, here is a, a meme that is just really exquisitely suited to the creation of lore and mythology and storytelling. And so I really leaned into that. Um, we organized, you know, a dick butt ball. We started organizing more formal events around dick butts. And with that came this really funny idea. I was like, okay, what if we extended the lore of, of crypto dick butts? And what if I, you know, took on this role of high priestess where I'm sort of bringing the spiritual element and the spiritual leadership element to the crypto dick butt community. And from there, you know, it's sort of snowball that's taken on a life of its own. But what's really exciting about it is that it's so organically driven and it's really a function of the many people who are part of the crypto dick butt community, like yourself, Matt, um, and many others who just are excited and entertained by the meme. There's no expectation of anything. There's no utility. There's no roadmap. Um, one of our core commandments, in fact, because we have 10 commandments, one of the core commandments is uh, no utility, no roadmaps. And so I think it allows for a certain amount of creative freedom and freedom of expression and sort of creativity in the community that maybe you might not see in other NFT projects or other sort of art-focused or meme-focused communities where there are expectations, there is utility, there is a roadmap, which I think naturally creates uh, boundaries and constraints on limits on what can be done and what that community is willing to, to tolerate. Yeah, I think those are a really great points. And I was at the dick butt ball. I witnessed the ritual. You know, I, I think it's really it's really interesting to see like the lore that you've been helping to encourage and and build because I know it's it's not just you. It, there's there's a very active community that is that is contributing to this as well. Um, for for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about like what is Gooch Island and where do you see this project going. Sure. So Gooch Island. So maybe I'll just give a brief overview of the core components of, of the lore of crypto dick butts, if you will. We're going to yes. intellectualize crypto dick butts, which is also just very fun. I think one thing people forget that's so important to how we spend our time is it should be fun. It should yes. be interesting. Um, and what I love is the people I've met through the crypto dick butt community um, are just fantastic people and we just really enjoy spending time together. I now work with a lot of crypto dick butt lovers. Uh, we have found ways to sort of collaborate and, and create value outside of Gooch Island together. But the core components of our lore are as, as follows. The story goes, and this is the part that was created by Slowbro, the original creator of Crypto Dick Butts, is Crypto Dick Butts uh, are from Gooch Island and um, 5,200 of them were forced to evacuate or forced to flee Gooch Island due to a tragedy of some, some kind. I believe it was an invasion, but as our high priestess, you know, I'm still divining the ancient records. I'm looking at hieroglyphics. I'm looking at artifacts um, that, you know, we find, but there's not a lot of history of, of Gooch Island. 
Lucha Island is the ancestral home of the crypto dick butts and people who, who own a crypto dick butt, you really don't own it. You're merely holding on to the crypto dick butt until it can be restored to, to the glory of Gucci Island. So that's a core tenet. Uh, another core tenet is, you know, that, um, there are these different characteristics of crypto dick butts. So we call it the three C's, uh, which are sort of used to describe the, the dick butts. They're clean, clean dick butts or clean boys, as I like to call them. Clean boys are characterized by very few traits, like the grayliest of the grayliest are completely naked dick butts. Um, then there are dick butts that have just one feature. These are three trait dick butts. I myself am a prolific collector of the clean boys. I believe I have the largest clean boy collection, but you know, who's counting? I'm <laughs> counting. Um, the second C is uh, chaotic. So some dick butts are just like really incredibly chaotic, have a mishmash of traits that don't really go together. And, you, and they just look sloppy and chaotic and just messy. And we love that. We love a chaotic situation. So that's the second C. And then the third C is cohesive, which is a type of dick butt I've recently started collecting. And it's one where the traits tell a story. So for example, one of my favorite crypto dick butts is one he has a little beret, he has little white shoes, he has a little skateboard and uh, little blue glasses, and he's my little French skater boy dick butt. Um, there are others, you know, some will have like a little uh, sombrero and a little red bikini that's like uh, going to the beach in Mexico dick butt. So the cohesive ones are the ones around which stories can be told. Um, and there's some really cool things we can maybe start to do with lore NFTs, right? Or storytelling narrative-driven NFTs that we can attach to crypto dick butts to help the lore propagate along with NFT itself and become immutable, right? Because the blockchain is is not just great for like the minting and trading of these things. It's also great for creating a, a record, um, a permanent record, right? Of, of the stories associated with these things, whether that's through on-chain data or the metadata that we can hash to the chain. So there's like a whole aspect of personalizing the lore around these features of your dick butt. But those are the three C's. Um, other tenets. So over the summer, I, you know, at the Crypto Dick Butt Ball, um, wrote a brief performance dance piece that was performed by uh, some ballet dancers, professional ballerinas that tells the story of Gooch Island. Uh, there is a magazine that is created by one of our community members called the Gooch Island Gazette that tells the story of Gooch Island. Uh, Pina Colada is our core component, spelled Peen, P-E-E-N-A, Pina Coladas. That's what we're going to drink on, on Gooch Island. Um, there is uh, the uh, liturgy, which is a hymn that I wrote. Um, you can download it on, you can listen to it on Spotify. If you search Gooch Island Gospel Choir or Crypto Dick Butt Liturgy, you will find it. It is a 90 second sort of incantation that uh, speaks to the worship and glory of Crypto Dick Butts. When, uh, there's our Sunday services. NFT. Pardon? When music NFT. Uh, well, you know, we do have Gooch Island Records. Uh, our head of A&R is Andrew Maxman. We have several DJs who've produced Crypto Dick Butt themed tracks to which our community members have contributed samples. So again, I think one of the things we've just really started to have fun with and play with is like, how can we extend this meme into all of these different domains? Um, and what are the different ways that people can sort of like interact with and have fun with this really entertaining meme? And at the end of the day, I'll tell you the simplest like mimetic propagation 
of crypto dick butts is people love saying dick and people love saying butt. Dick butt put together, super funny. And the fact that you can go into a professional venue, we can sit on this podcast, you know, you can go to a conference, you can do a show, you can be at a meetup and you can, with a straight face and very seriously talk about crypto dick butts as an asset class. People just love that. Like we're all five-year-olds at heart. And so the ability to just like say crypto dick butt, it makes me laugh on the inside every time. And you know, the meme is just, it's universal in nature. So I think it extends itself very well into all of these different domains. And while it might start off as a, a joke, right? I think um, a lot of times if we think of like absurdism and Dadaism as a movement, absurdity is a great way of reflecting on like the current cultural zeitgeist. And so I think the absurdity of crypto dick butts to many people sort of captures some of the absurdity of like NFTs, crypto, and just this world we live in in general, where we're really like culture is converging on these really short-lived ephemeral memes um, that get propagated across all of these different facets of culture. And so I think crypto dick butts are just an excellent like mechanism for reflecting on that and sort of laughing at the absurdity of it of it all. So again, here we are intellectualizing something as as absurd as crypto dick butts, but I think that the meme just extends itself so well into all of these different other cultural trends and like metaphysical sort of trends that are emerging around the thinking and the evolution of what NFTs are, what crypto is more broadly, it's not just an asset class, it's not just art, right? These are communities of people who share beliefs or ideas and are trying to bring them to life in different ways through these things that have historically been um, sort of monetized through products, companies, like these, these very specific channels, right, that are centralized. And now we have the ability to imbue memes with capital in a really novel and interesting way. So this whole experiment, I think, is just like very illuminating for me. It's very fun. As I always say, I'm an aspiring cult leader. Crypto dick butts are an interesting way to sort of experiment and, and play with that. I mean, I would say that you're no longer aspiring. I'd say you're full blown. You've arrived, you know. <laughs> so you know how Andy is our Wednesday. You know how Andy Warhol said, like in the future, everyone will have their 15 minutes of fame. So I think social media has certainly, you know, made that a reality, and everyone sort of has their little moment in the sun. What I like to say is, I think if we look at like the crisis of meaning and the emergence of online communities imbued with capital through crypto, I think in the future everyone will be a cult leader. You start by joining cults, and then you create your own cults. And I use the word cult here loosely. I think it's a bit provocative. Community is another word, but we use that word so often and like without any sort of qualification that I think a cult is sort of like a very specific characterization of it. But in the future, everyone will be a cult leader for, for 15 minutes. And we love that. We love that. And if there's one thing that I've learned from Web3, crypto, blockchain, NFTs, never bet against the power of memes and the power of people having fun. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I think, too, it, it also brings to light, I mean, now these cultural areas where people have interest and are united by their shared interests have new ways to participate. There's financial models that kind of incentivize participation, ambassadorship. Um, I'm curious, as somebody that's participated in the broader crypto and blockchain world for a while, like what else is particularly exciting to you about NFTs? Yeah, so I think um, there are a few things that are interesting about NFTs. I think really the initial application of NFTs, for in my view, has been flex on the internet, right? It's a it's a status symbol that indicates belonging, and in a way, um, 
there's a great article that got written in paper magazine, I think back in 2017, that um, the title of it was Bitcoin is the new Birkin bag, right? And that sounds a little bit absurd, but if we think about luxury goods, right? Um, if you listen to Bernard Arnault, who owns LVMH, right? The, the fashion luxury lifestyle conglomerate, um, his articulation of what he does in his business is he sells hopes and dreams, right? He sells people this idea of the best version of themselves and of a, of a world that they want to be in. And I think similarly, I think the way NFTs have gotten really utilized in the crypto space, um, you know, really started with, with Bitcoin and these different communities that emerged where owning Bitcoin wasn't just like, hey, I'm an investor in, in X, you know, if you own Google stock, you don't, pronounce to the world on a daily basis how much you love Google stock, how incredible Google is. You don't like pour over the financials. Most people are like, oh yeah, I own these assets in my portfolio. People with Bitcoin in their portfolios have like deep held ideological beliefs about what owning Bitcoin says about them, says about the state of the world. It's it's as much an act of investing financial capital um, as it is a statement about who you are being made to, to the world. And I think NFTs sort of extended that because NFTs are an asset class, but there are also these, these PFPs, right? They can be shared with the world through these various signifiers that we use, whether it's a profile picture, i.e. PFP, or it's a shirt, or it's your attendance at an event, or it's, you know, your on-chain wallet that is participating in these DAOs. So I think the, the propagation of NFTs really was about like flexing on the internet in a new and novel way. And the absurdity, like if I look at Etherox, right, the absurdity of owning a piece of clip art, a free clip art rock that has been memorialized on the Ethereum blockchain, right, through this, this hash that points to the image, is not even the ERC721 token, right? But the absurdity of owning a picture of a rock that trades for a couple of million dollars, right, that in and of itself is sort of an expression of who you are. It says something about you. It says that you're flexy as fuck, which I really like. Um, similarly, right, owning an ape, uh, is a similar thing. Owning Crypto Dickba says something about you. And so I think it really started with this idea of like, how do we create our identity? How do I identify with these memes in new and novel ways? Um, and then imbuing them with financial capital, right, actually enables us to have the resources to translate that flex and that clout in these online communities in the physical world through our ability to like purchase things, organize events and command power and influence through financial capital, not just social capital. So that's one. And then I think the second element um, that I know, you know, Matt, you're really focused on, and I think a lot of people are really focused on is the, the art aspect. I do think one of the questions that, you know, is being explored and has been explored for a long time with modern art in particular is like, what is art? And so I think NFTs are sort of pushing that boundary through the financialization of art and the extension of art in new ways. I think of like Schlamm's and what he did with Carr, where he got a Lamborghini, blew it up in the desert, filmed a video, and then sold NFTs of the like burned up car parts. That's, a, is that art, right? So it continues to kind of extend this question that we've ex been exploring, I think, for the last 50, 60 years, like, what is art? What gives art value? And part of it is the performance, part of it is the lore, and sort of the significance of this art 
like loosely using the phrase art in the cultural context within sort of the current cultural zeitgeist. And a big part of it's also the meme, right? So if you think back to Art Basel a few years ago, the banana taped on the wall, is that art? Questionable, but the act of doing that, right? The act of doing that in and of itself is art because it prompts a conversation about the meaning of art. So it's sort of recursive in a way that I think um, NFTs have sort of started to delve into that realm. It's like, what is art? Is this something that has artistic value? What is artistic value to begin with? And then this really unique liquidity that gets created around artistic expression, right, is something we haven't had before because art has historically been incredibly illiquid as an asset class. And so the liquidity of NFTs and the ability for them to be extended in all of these financialized applications, I think is just beginning now. And so it's, um, yeah, it's just really fascinating. I think it's like commentary on what is art? What is the output of human creative expression? Um, is art created by an individual? Is art created by a community? And how does the perception of that art or that act of creation and its financialization like change where that art lives within the cultural lexicon, right? I think Beeple is a great example of that, right? Because I don't think anyone would objectively look at every day and say, oh my God, this is like incredible art. I think the fact that that art has been so financialized and that Beeple has sold hundreds of millions of dollars of these images is part of what makes the art culturally relevant, which is not a dismissal of the art in and of itself. But I just, I don't believe that the art would have reached the level of attention and sort of gotten this place within sort of the narrative if it wasn't so financialized. And I think that's an important aspect of it as, as well. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. Now, I know there's a lot of interesting applications surrounding NFTs, but one of the more interesting components is that it actually has brought lots of new consumers that haven't necessarily previously interacted with blockchain tech before into the space. Do you feel like NFTs will be a key driver of mainstream consumer adoption of blockchain technology? Uh, look, I think that's a challenging one. And I think it's a good question. What I look to there is I think sentiment around NFTs is fairly neutral to negative. And here's why. I think a lot of the people that were able to participate in NFTs were people who already had assets on chain. And this is one of the challenges just sort of around the whole like infrastructure stack that facilitates the minting, buying, selling of NFTs, the broader financialization of NFTs is you have to have some level of comfort with and competence with crypto assets, even if you're using, you know, Nifty Gateway or another platform that has credit card processing or like ACH wiring capability built in. Um, I do think, you know, the early participants in the NFT ecosystem and those that have benefited most from the financialization, like the cultural relevance of, of NFTs are people who are also early in the crypto community. And there's nothing that the establishment hates more than people getting rich that aren't them. Right. And I, and I say that in like a, a mocking way, but we even see this within the NFT community. Like people get really mad when people who aren't them, NFT influencers get really mad, you know, when they're not involved in a project and it's really successful. Why? Because anytime you have an establishment, there are people who challenge that and are being successful in it in these traditional measures of success, which like capital money is like the the most objective measure of success you can have, right? Um, because it's very tangible and can be translated into other types of success and other types of influence, social influence, like other types of soft power and hard power that, that matter in this world. So I think the public perception of NFTs is still somewhat negative because they see it as somewhat inaccessible. And a lot of the people who have 
create a lot of wealth and create a lot of influence and power for themselves in the world of NFTs are like not people who are traditional purveyors of cultural capital. And I think that is a frustrating. Um, I think the second component is, you know, just generally, there is a lot of FUD, there is a lot of negative commentary around NFTs. We saw this in particular, you know, with Reddit. Reddit has always been very anti-NFT. Then Reddit got these NFT avatars, people made a little bit of money and suddenly they're like, I'm so pro NFT, which I think goes back to the first point. Um, but I think, you know, it's really, really challenging for new communities to sort of grasp NFTs. And there is a lot of negative perception out there. And what I think is so interesting, right, is like proponents of proof of stake blockchains have always decried proof of work for being energy intensive. And they're like, hey, proof of proof of stake is more energy efficient, whatever. And people are like, oh, well, we hate proof of stake too, right? And and what I'm trying to argue, and then it's like, oh, move on to the next thing, next narrative. What I'm trying to say there is like the way you win isn't by bashing others and by pointing flaw, out flaws in others. Like the way we win is by all banding together and saying, okay, let's not focus on this part of the narrative, or let's actually quantify and qualify the statements that are being made here, because objectively, they're false, right? Like minting an NFT, part of the Tezos narrative for a long time was minting an NFT on Tezos, like burns X percent less carbon than minting an NFT on Ethereum. And I'm like, okay, I understand why you're doing this. But from a marketing perspective, this is actually doesn't make any sense because you're making NFTs as an asset class and as like a movement and as technology less appealing overall, you're not winning. You're actually making the market and, and the percept smaller and the perception worse. And so it's like winning by maligning others is not winning. It's like losing, but losing less maybe. And what I want to focus on is like, how do we all win, right? So we have ordinals now, which are inscriptions on Bitcoin as NFTs, which is super cool. Um, but we have Ethereum NFTs, which are still by and large the most liquid NFT market and the highest value NFT market. We have Solana NFTs, we have Polygon NFTs. Like there is room for all of these things to flourish. But again, I think within the crypto ecosystem, people get so caught up in trying to game these metrics and trying to quote unquote win, but actually they're losing and they're trying to just lose slightly less. And I don't think that works. So I think as an industry, we just need to be more mindful of how we're presenting what, what we're doing. And I think that has been a big detractor because what people latch onto is not, oh, Tezos is less polluting than Ethereum. They latch onto, oh my God, NFTs overall are so polluting because the nuance just isn't there in that conversation. So I don't think mainstream adoption of NFTs is here. I frankly don't know if NFTs require mainstream adoption either. So I think that is a big misnomer. Everyone's like, oh my God, we need mass adoption. I'm like, well, we don't necessarily need mass adoption for this to win and for this to work. And so I, I also question whether or not, you know, every person in the world owning hundreds of NFTs is really the most productive path forward, or if that necessarily grows the TAM, right, the total addressable market of the NFT space, because let's be candid, the reality is that like most of the world's population is not going to be spending tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on trading JPEGs. Fair, fair. And, you know, I know that I think great points across the board and I love your perspective there. You know, I know that you have been uh, involved in the, in the greater crypto space for years now. You were early, you know, an early advocate of Bitcoin. I'm a big, a big part of that community. And so I'd be curious to hear what, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin ordinals? I know that they've uh, excited one segment of the community and they've also like enraged another segment. So uh, where do you stand and, and what do you what do you think about NFTs on Bitcoin? Look, um, 
what I've learned about the Bitcoin community, and I'm a Bitcoin first person, but I'm not a Bitcoin only person, which makes me impure in the eyes of the Bitcoin maximalists, um, which I love. I'm an impure, you know, bitch. It's fine with me. An I'm still the high priestess, priestess of, if you will. Yes. Yeah, I'm still the high priestess of Goose Island. You can't take that away from me, even no though I love things that, that aren't Bitcoin as well. Um what I think is interesting, and this goes back to this idea of, of cults and belief, I think um, the majority of the Bitcoin community is not the community you see that's very vocal online. There's a huge silent majority in the Bitcoin community. And if you look at the data from the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, which publishes a great study every year on cryptocurrency adoption around the world, um, according to their estimates, there are 300 to 500 million people around the world who own Bitcoin. Right. That's it's a pretty big number. Those people are not a part of the conversation. And for those people, Bitcoin fulfills a very basic function. They're not the people who are trying to flex or use Bitcoin as a Birkin bag. Right. But then there is this really small but very vocal community who is trying to create the cultural capital around Bitcoin, who I think have just become increasingly um illogical, right? I think like the dogma around Bitcoin maximalism has sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's increasingly detached from reality. And the reality is this, right? Bitcoin block space is the most secure distributed computation that we have in, in the crypto space because it's secured by, by proof of work. And we can argue the merits of proof of work, but that's not the objective here. The objective here is just to articulate that like there's this incredibly valuable block space. Currently, it's being utilized primarily for transactions, right? But we have this ability, right, to utilize this block, block space for a whole host of other things. And so I think the ability to experiment with how we can utilize that block space in ways that are valuable, right, financially speaking valuable, culturally speaking valuable, is really interesting. And I think ordinals do just that, right? They say, okay, how can we utilize this block space to perform a function that is valuable to someone and that they're willing to pay for? And so if we look at the data, right? And again, I want to go back to like, how do we quantify and qualify this? If we look at the data, since ordinals launched, Two weeks ago, the adoption of Taproot, right, which is Bitcoin upgrade, has increased by 7%. So Ordinals is actually driving UX improvements in wallets and other products in the Bitcoin space and the adoption and implementation of Taproot, which has historically not been prioritized by many of these service providers and applications built on Bitcoin. And so it's actually pushing the UX and the integration of Bitcoin upgrades forward, which I think is hugely value creative, right? Because... And why is this happening? Because money is being spent on ordinals. And to date, over the last two weeks, nearly $1 million in Bitcoin fees have been spent on inscribing ordinals. And so what's really interesting here is a lot of times Bitcoiners are anti-financialization, but the reality is like financialization is the world we live in. And the financialization of JPEGs on Bitcoin through ordinals and inscriptions has led to a market opportunity, which has led to people changing their products, integrating, you know, Taproot, the upgrade into their product, changing how they're presenting their product, changing the UX, right, to make ordinals more accessible because they see this market opportunity. So in a way, the financial opportunity has a direct impact on the arc, which the evolution of the products and infrastructure side moves. So I think that's very important for Bitcoin. And then the second thing is like, 
we're going to see tokens issued on Bitcoin. We're going to see a DeFi ecosystem on Bitcoin. I've been talking to a ton of Bitcoin projects who are built on Lightning, who are looking now at L3s, right? We're looking at different ways to implement smart contracts on top of Bitcoin, whether that's through using, you know, something like Stacks, which is a, a separate blockchain network that is anchored to the security of the Bitcoin blockchain, or whether that's using Lightning or something else built on Bitcoin altogether. But I think what ordinals are also showcasing is like, hey, there's this whole ecosystem of applications that can be built. There may be a group of people who are angry about that. There may be a group of people who are excited about that. But at the end of the day, right, this is a permissionless protocol. It's it's a tool that can be used by people. People are choosing to use it. And the way in which they're using it is generating value for the Bitcoin community, number one, by pushing the direction of product forward in a way that, you know, is accelerating some of these very important integrations, use cases, upgrades that need to be made. But number two, by contributing to the economic security of the Bitcoin network through driving utilization and driving the willingness of people to pay higher transaction fees to prioritize their transactions. And so again, I think it's like if this economic activity is contributing to security, if this economic activity is contributing to the development of applications and use cases and products and services that fulfill people's needs and wants and lead to them spending money, right? Because at the end of the day, like these businesses need to make money. Um, then that, in my view, is a, a net positive. And so I try not to be dogmatic about it. I try to be practical about it. No, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see innovation like that occur within the space. And I think there's ongoing, even if we're in this bear market phase right now, tons of innovation, tons of applications that are coming to market, bringing in new customer segments, um, and that's kind of validating that the innovation isn't dependent on actual crypto and market prices. With that said, I'm very curious, given your experience in navigating and, and being through multiple bull runs, bear runs, what is your outlook on the crypto markets in the next couple of years? And what do you think are some of the, the key factors that are ultimately driving it that people should be aware of? Yeah, look, I think um, this is a great question. And I think it has a direct impact on, you know, how we view the NFT spaces as well. Because at the end of the day, I do think NFTs are a separate and distinct asset class, but they have a high correlation to the broader crypto market, right? Because these things are priced in Ethereum and, and other assets that are native to, to these chains. So my, my outlook is as follows. Look, I think the excesses of the last two years have um, really materially damaged the perception of cryptocurrency and just the crypto space overall. Um, I don't think this is unique to crypto. There's a lot of malfeasance and fraud in the tech space in general. One of the things you know that's inevitable is anytime there's innovation or a new market opportunity, you're going to see missionaries and mercenaries. You're going to see people who are really passionate about it, you know, who built things the right way. And you're going to see people who are attracted to the opportunity to create wealth or influence or whatever else may, may matter to them who are not so attached to, to the mission. And so, look, I think like a lot of really embarrassing things have transpired. There has been a lot of fraud, a lot of bad actors, not unique to crypto by any means. We see it in tech, we see it in finance, we see it everywhere. But the fact that it is so sensational and the fact that it's just at a scale that is so profound. Um, and the fact that the characters involved are so absurd, right? Like crypto is the only industry where everything happens in view of the public on the internet. So not only is money moving on chain, right? And it's fully visible. So the on-chain flows and the financial relationships between these different players are fully transparent and on chain, but also like the communication, the beefs, the craziness is all 
on Twitter as well, right? So everything is happening in the public and is discoverable, which I think is quite unique because in most industries, right, you don't have that level of transparency. You don't have this sort of ability for key players, key characters in this narrative to communicate one to many directly through this like wild medium we call Twitter, which has become the de facto market square for everything that happens in, in the crypto space. So I think that has certainly contributed to sort of this perception that people have that the entire industry is filled with these like main characters that we've seen that then get killed, right? And in every market cycle, my objective is never be the main character. I'm a supporting character, like maybe I'm an NPC, I show up periodically. This is a safe way to play it. I think main character energy is both positive and negative, and you have to be very careful with how you use it. Um, the second thing, like if we just look at it from um macro perspective, I think one of the challenges is the economic environment we're in is a, a really difficult one. Um, inflation, right, is at levels we haven't seen in my lifetime in America, at, at least. I'm in my, you know, mid to late 30s. I, I've never seen an environment like this. I think this is very new. Um, I think what we saw during the last three years of, of COVID with all of the, um, you know, monetary and fiscal stimulus is, is something we haven't necessarily seen before. And so I think there's just like some really fundamental challenges to the health of, of the global economy and global markets. And there are a lot of distortions that have been created. And so, you know, the risk-free rate, the, the one-year treasury rate is 5% that that's pretty good. Inflation is 7%, right? So if I just invest, invest in, in treasuries, like I'm netting negative 2%. If I invest in crypto, I take a lot more risk. There's a lot more volatility. But I think generally investors in an environment like this are just a bit more wary of, of risk, which is why I find this week's market activity so interesting because markets as a whole have been fairly risk off since the start of the year. But in crypto, like we're buying risk. So I think the macro environment is challenging. And frankly, I'm, I'm not an economist. That's not what I do for my job. We have a great research team at CoinShare is my firm that, that does do macro research and market research. And there are a lot of great macro thinkers who cover the crypto space, but just generally looking at this environment is a really weird environment and extends all the way from public equities all the way down to venture capital because venture capital is going through sort of its own reckoning and its own recalibration, right? Where nobody's buying like growth and late stage anymore because the IPO market's pretty dead. Everyone's migrating to the early stage. It's creating like a huge lack of capital. And they're in the crypto space as well. There are companies that I invested in eight years ago that don't have any pathway to, to exit, right? Private markets have just like grown tremendously. So there's just all of these undercurrents in macro and in the broader like capital markets landscape that are really challenging. But at the end of the day, what I do think is true is if you look at our generation, if you look at people in their 20s and 30s, right, we have gotten fucked financially. And so I think there's still a lot of people who look at crypto as an opportunity, right? The volatility of crypto for them is an opportunity to create adequate wealth, right? To give them freedom and security in a way that like the current trajectory of opportunities in capital markets, in the job market, et cetera, cannot offer them. So I think the year is going to be an interesting one. I don't see any major catalysts that are going to drive things in a positive direction. I think there's going to be a lot more regulation. Like the SEC has basically, you know, 
issued the war cry. Um, they're issuing a lot of was notices. They're investigating, interrogating everything. What that will lead to TBD, right? But I think just that scrutiny is going to p- make people a lot more apprehensive and a lot more risk averse. Um, I think the other trend is like there's really negative sentiment around crypto right now. I think people view our industry a little bit, you know, as unprofessional. And I, I do think that is detrimental because there are a lot of great companies that are well run, but there are also a lot of clowns and we love clowning, but at some point, you know, you have to put your big boy pants on and like get it together a little bit. Um, and so I, I don't see any positive catalysts. I don't see any huge inflows that are going to materialize unless something really insane happens. So I think this year is going to be a year where things stay fairly flat from a prices perspective to slightly down as people look to de-risk or as people need cash to fund their lifestyles, right? Like we forget a lot of people in crypto haven't worked like actually in years and years. And so the volatility is not there. If the money runs out, you know, they got to get cash somehow. So there might be selling. Um, I do think a lot of the forced selling is done. I do think, you know, We've seen after FTX, you know, we bounced back in three months, which is kind of unheard of. We hit a, a low tick on Bitcoin around 16K, and now we're back at like 23, 24, which is where we were before the FTX implosion. So I think that's a positive indicator of sort of the, the health and resilience of, of the space overall. But I just don't see any major positive catalyst. And the thing is, Sam, to your question earlier, you were like, oh, what's going to drive broader like Web3 consumer adoption? I don't think. Web3 consumer adoption isn't necessarily um, a net positive for asset prices. And I think this is like a really interesting misnomer because everyone's like, yeah, you know, if we get millions of people into Web3, like crypto is going to move. And I'm like, no, it's not because they're not going to buy your bags. Like they're not going to be buying these tokens. They're going to be interacting with stable coins and, and like these on ramps that are dollarized that are easy for them to access and don't require them to be exposed to some of the underlying inherent volatility of these assets. So I don't think this idea that like if A, then B is necessarily true. So if we get millions of users onboard into Web3, that doesn't necessarily mean asset prices are going to rise dramatically, right? It does mean on-chain activity could increase dramatically depending on where that activity takes place, right? On L1, L2, app chain, whatever, but it doesn't necessarily require asset prices to, to increase dramatically. So I think there are just these fundamental misperceptions where people are like, oh my God, adoption is going to be great. And I'm like, well, adoption is going to be great for the utilization of the underlying infrastructure, but not necessarily for asset prices themselves, because a lot of people aren't holding these assets outside of like this, this very small group of crazy people. That's Sorry, a that's a lot of words, but no, some very, very good words, very, very worthwhile words. Um, no, I think there's a lot to, to unpack there. And, uh, you know, I'd love to, to dig a little bit deeper on the, the regulatory uh, uh, bit, because I think, you know, obviously looking at the post FTX landscape, um, as you said, um, there's a lot of a talk around uh, what Gary Gensler is going to do with the SEC. Um, there, there's a Gary's lot of... Gary's going to protect. Gary is here to protect. <laughs> Sorry, <I'm> not... <laughs> And so I, I want to get your perspective, just like, how do you, I know you said it's TBD, but how do you think the regulatory landscape will, is going to evolve surrounding crypto in the next two years? And how do you think that will impact NFTs specifically? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I think it's something we're all sort of looking at interpreting. I'm not a lawyer. There are a lot of brilliant crypto lawyers out there who have like written threads on this, who are analyzing every statement, every video coming from Gary the Protector and, uh, and other agencies, not just Gary. Um, here's, here's kind of the reality in my view, and I just want to take it really high uh, level. The reality is 
crypto is here to, to stay. Over the last eight years that I've been in this industry, um, we have seen the creation of a financial market, a global capital market that operates 24-7, 365 with incredibly deep liquidity, right? Incredibly deep liquidity that has evolved and developed entirely outside of the existing financial system and entirely outside of the traditional banking structure. In the entire like 150 years of global capital markets and the growth and development of global capital markets, that has never happened. An asset class has never started this way. And this is made possible through this fundamental technological innovation of blockchains, right? And so what I think is so interesting is as we look at the regulatory action, the only thing that regulators can do at this point is attempt to slow the growth of cryptocurrency and the adoption of cryptocurrency. And the primary channels through which they can do that is by severing the ability for the crypto economy to connect to the fiat economy, which they're doing with this custody act, which they're doing with, um, you know, uh, Operation Choke Point 2.0, which they're doing with bank de-risking, which they're doing with auditor de-risking, right? which they're doing with OFAC and BSA and all of this, they can attempt to sever the ties between the crypto economy and the fiat economy, right? To make it less, uh, to, to slow down the inflow of capital into the crypto ecosystem. And that is one thing they can do, but you cannot shut down the Bitcoin blockchain. You cannot shut down the Ethereum blockchain. You cannot stop a smart contract from executing. You cannot stop a program built on a global distributed computer from running. And I think this is just such an interesting, like fundamental misunderstanding. You can intimidate people. I think the Wells notices that are going out are an attempt at intimidation. I think the way that funds in the space and, and asset managers in the space are now being like investigated and interrogated is an attempt at intimidation. And look, intimidation can work, right? Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO. You can't call the CEO of Bitcoin. Ethereum doesn't have a CEO. You can't call the CEO of Ethereum. And so the ability for regulators to coerce and to exert influence through coercion and threats is not present in this space. It's only present at the application, but at the underlying protocol layer and the network infrastructure layer, their ability to influence is fairly minimal. And so there's a lot happening in the global landscape, but at the end of the day, what's exciting to me and has always been exciting to me and what I think is being proven in real time right now is the only thing regulators can do at this point is slow down growth and force people to leave the jurisdictions in which they're currently operating. And I think it's a huge mistake in the United States. The United States enjoys the world's largest, best developed capital market. Why? Because it has always been a place for innovation, for financial innovation, for technological innovation, for like property rights and IP law, right? We have this really robust structure, this operating system around capital markets that's been built that makes this a really great place to build businesses and to build companies and to build financial markets. If that's no longer the case, that activity is going to move elsewhere, right? And I think Balaji Srinivasan, if, if you prescribe to his idea of like the network state and how sovereign nation states will start to compete for talent and, and capital, right? There is a huge prize to be had here. And I don't think that every regulator in the world is going to take the stance the United States has taken. At the end of the day, we forget, like we currently live in a global dollarized economy, which is what allows the SEC and US regulators to be so powerful, right? Because they have the ability 
to touch anything that U.S. dollars and the U.S. banking system touches, which is almost everything. But if we have this completely separate and distinct crypto economy, the question is just like, how much can you coerce and control? And at the end of the day, it's not everything, right? And that's where the opportunity is. So I'm excited about it. And I think people are starting to realize, right, that the ability of regulators to coerce and control the direction of development of crypto at this point is somewhat minimal. Um, And there's very specific points that they can attack, right, that fall under sort of their purview where coercion and control can happen. But there's a lot that cannot be coerced, cannot be controlled. And so, you know, we focused on sort of this capital markets evolution for the last five or six years. But if these things happen and if these access points get cut off, then we're going back to the revolution, which is, you know, where I started my crypto career. It's like, how do we build these things in absence of collaboration with and cooperation from the traditional financial system and the fiat denominated economy? Yeah, no, no, great, great points across the board. You know, I know, I know you touched on this earlier as well um, when you talked about um, how the bear market has impacted the venture world and 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 the private markets. Um, what I'd love to, uh, if you could, we could dig into that a little bit too, especially from the perspective of like builders in this space. Like, given the current bear market climate and what you're seeing, like, what fundamentals should builders in the space focus on in order to survive? Here's where I get really trad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My background um, is did a lot of corporate finance, right? And in corporate finance, there are three things that matter. There are three holy grails of, of truth. And there are three financial documents you produce. They are your income statement. They are your cash flow. And they are your balance sheet. Those are the three things that matter. And so at the end of the day, right, um, if you, it doesn't matter if you're a crypto company, not a crypto company, it does not matter at all. Um, At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're DAO, if you are a business that spends, makes and spends money, right, those things really matter. And I think sometimes in crypto, we get caught up in like these crazy narratives that allow us to get away from these fundamentals. But at the end of the day, if you are running a company, you need to make money you need to make revenue. That revenue needs to be preferably like recurring in nature and not subject to a huge degree of volatility. And then you need to have a low enough cost base that after you take your costs out of that revenue, there is EBITDA or profit left over, right? So you need to have free cash flow, um, right? That materializes, that, that funds your operations and makes your business sustainable. And then as we look at the balance sheet, you need to have a match of assets and liabilities. One of the fundamental issues we have in crypto is a duration mismatch between assets and liabilities, right? And that's what led to a lot of the issues with FTX and these other platforms is a fundamental duration mismatch between the assets they're holding, the way they're pricing those assets and the outstanding liabilities they have. Same thing with Genesis, right? They thought they had assets that were worth X. In fact, those assets were worth Y. They had liabilities worth X. Those liabilities didn't get repriced, but the assets backing those liabilities did. So again, I think people really need to go back to the basics and the fundamentals. You know, the model matters. The model really matters. So income statement, um, cash flow, and balance sheet, really important, number one. And number two, I think um, what people are looking at is like, in crypto, there's one business model, NFTs, cryptocurrencies, web, whatever it is, doesn't matter. There's one business model that has consistently made money. And the one business model that consistently makes money in every market climate is interchange, right? At the end of the day, one of the things I think people sometimes don't 
recognize is every crypto business models is fundamentally like an interchange business model. There is a facilitation of exchange, right? That is financialized. That is what blockchains do. They enable the financialization of all of these interactions. They enable everything to become a transaction because that's what these medium, like blockchains are medium for financial computation. And so interchange is the key here. And the closer you are to the interchange, the more likely you are to have a sustainable recurring revenue model because the interchange is where the money is made. So look at all the most successful companies in the um, NFT space. They're companies that facilitate interchange, right? OpenSea facilitates interchange. Magic Eden facilitates interchange. Blur facilitates interchange. So I think people need to sort of recognize that. And we're seeing that, right? A lot of companies that were further up the stack and further away from the actual exchanging of value are now figuring out how to get closer to it or to embed that capability within their own platforms, et cetera. So I think that'll be a big trend. And then the other trend is like, look, a lot of this stuff isn't like Web3, it's enterprise SaaS. And so like bundle it, package it, sell it, integrate it like enterprise SaaS. We're now seeing this with more people developing like SDKs, APIs, and more generalized tooling and infrastructure. But price it like SaaS, like don't put a silly little token on it. Price it like SaaS so that people who buy SaaS can buy it. And so I think these two things are starting to happen. And again, it's like, yes, there are new business models, but there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. It's repetitions. History doesn't repeat, but it definitely rhymes. And so I do think we're starting to shift um, as people are looking at sort of their cash flow, their burn, trying to go and raise capital. They're recognizing the things that really matter. Are like, what is your ability to consistently generate revenue? How does that compare to the cost base that you have? Is your cost base able to support right? This, this revenue generation in a sustainable, scalable way? And like, is this a business that could grow in a variety of different market climates? So if there is any advice, like basics of corporate finance, learn them, understand what an income statement is, how cash flow statements work, and wh- how balance sheet works, and how you match both sides of the ledger, balance both sides of the financial ledger, right? These are important skills. They're not sexy, but they're very easy to learn, very easy to master. I get very excited about them. Um, so that that's really important. Amazing. No, super great advice. Um As we come towards a close, we have a recurring segment here on the show called Bullish or Bearish, where we run through a list of different topics and you let us know if you're bullish or bearish and a brief reason as to why. Crypto dick butts, bullish or bearish? Sam, fucking bullish. Let's go. (laughs) I'm so bullish um, that it's impossible to contain my enthusiasm. I would ask you guys, crypto dick butts, are we bull or bear guys? Bullish. Never bet against the memes. That's right. All right. Bullish or bearish? Binance. Bullish. Binance is incredible business. Um, incredible operating flexibility. Yes, they may have some sort of like regulatory legal challenges. I think those will get settled, right? If we look at other platforms that have had such challenges, whether it's um, Bitfinex, Bitmax, Tether, et cetera, all resulted in sort of, you know, settlements. But Binance, incredibly flexible business, um, has extended into so many different verticals and I think has done an incredible job really dominating the interchange space, right? Consistently. Um, So bullish. Amazing. And uh, Coinbase. Neutral. I would say neutral. I think Coinbase is going to drop some new things in the coming like quarter that are going to blow people's minds. And they have to. I think one thing Coinbase is starting to maybe recognize, again, I have no inside information here. This is just me 
looking at the financials, looking at the, the messaging and, and the trajectory of the business. I think Coinbase needs to sort of fundamentally shift some of its, its operating model. I think one big shift we will see is more exchanges moving into the non-custodial space where they'll start to do more stuff directly on chain which is pretty cool um, because, again, if, they're, if they can do things on chain and become non-custodial, then if it dramatically reduces some of the compliance requirements and some of like, the regulatory requirements. So that, I think, is really the big opportunity for both Binance. And Binance has gone that direction with like BNB, right, where they're doing a lot of stuff on chain via BNB. I think Coinbase will start to move that direction and say, okay, what can we do on chain or what can we do in a non-custodial manner that allows us to still earn revenues on interchange, but perhaps reduce the cost base by minimizing some of the compliance infrastructure that's needed to make that happen. Cool. Bullish or bearish? Gemini. Bearish. Bearish. Um, I love Gemini. I use Gemini. It's one of my favorite platforms. I think the challenge is Gemini just has a lot of challenges around, you know, Gemini Earn. I do think even though ultimately the issue is Genesis, I do think Gemini Earn is is the brand that was jam- damaged most in an association, uh, Gemini, right? It's it's pretty bad when you market yourself as the trusted regulated exchange. Um, and then, you know, you lose $900 million of customer funds and it's pretty damaging. Um, I think Gemini has built like really good product infrastructure and I like using the platform. I think it has great functionality, um, but I do think, you know, they haven't really been able to capture market share over the last four or five years. And just given where they're at, I don't know if they'll be, be able to do that with the resources at their disposal. Well said. Last but not least, historical NFTs. So bullish. What do you think will drive the value prop? I think people want to own um, things that are culturally significant, right? So I think a lot of modern art, and we kind of touched on this earlier, is being able to tap into the zeitgeist, right? And create things um, that are mimetically relevant, right? Um, And so what I think historical NFTs do really well is they capture the zeitgeist of a moment in time that was really formative, and people love owning historical artifacts. Huge market is why people like own collectibles. Um, it's owning a piece of something that helped create culture, cultural movement. And I think in the same way, a lot of people view historical NFTs in that context is like, hey, here's a really important, beautiful moment of a formative moment in crypto culture. And so I think um, they have been popular in the past. They will continue to be popular. I think the ability to extend the cultural relevance of those historical artifacts into like the current culture will be important. So I think the projects that meme best will will win. Um, and some projects are more memeable than others. Like Ether Rocks are imminently memeable because they're literally silly pet rocks. They look like each other. I think something like... Um, Lower the moon cats are a little bit more challenging to, to meme, but I think historical NFTs will always have a special place in the hearts of crypto aficionados. There are a lot of them, they have deep pockets, and so people will pay to own a small piece of crypto's cultural history. Amazing. There it well, is. Well, Meltem, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your wonderful perspectives. Keep up all of the great work, and uh, we'll see you soon. 
Yes, I look forward to welcoming you to Sunday service. And um, my Twitter DMs are always open if anyone wants to reach out or if you have perspectives that differ from mine. I'm always excited about a healthy, respectful debate on the internet. So thanks, NFT Now, for having me. Well, there you have it. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, look, I I love talking with Meltem. I always appreciate her perspective uh, from, you know, being a cult leader with the crypto dick butts uh, to embracing Bitcoin ordinals uh, to kind of speaking to the macro uh, economic environment we're in. Um, You know, she's a crypto OG. This is not her first rodeo. She has a wide angle lens on the space and it really shows in these conversations. You know, she's not afraid to say the things that some people don't want to hear. Like, uh, you know, those to come may not buy your bags and things like that. But uh, I think that her perspective and and her insights are really valuable. And I really appreciate her coming on the show. Yeah, 1000%. I mean, one thing that stood out to me is straightforward as it may be, the importance of focusing on business fundamentals. It's so easy in this landscape to get caught up in hype cycles and playing the unsustainable business dynamics that revolve largely around speculation. So if you're a builder in the space, making sure that you have crystal clarity in who you're serving, how you're providing value in a meaningful way that contributes to recurring revenue so you can continue to reinvest and grow your business is of critical importance. As always, really appreciate everybody for tuning in, for supporting the show. If you haven't already, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at nftnow.com. And that's it for this week. Until next week, we are out.